Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. glad that this podcast, your podcast is coming at a really important time. And to talk about issues such as social justice and race, race in in the US is this is this is the time that these topics should be brought up in I think every context, every context possible, because that's how you're going to be able to change the conversation. That's also how you're going to get people to hear more about what these experiences mean. So as far as you asked, you know, how, how are my my kids developing? I mean, you know, it's obviously very early on. So my, my son is seven. I am so impressed by the curriculum in his classroom. And I really kind of use that as the, that's, that's, I'm following their curriculum. So I get to learn through what he's learning. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that that's a great setting for him to have some of those very important conversations. Hello and welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner, Parent Coach, and CEO, your Chief Encouragement Officer, here with another episode, excited to share an interview with another mom who's changing the world in her special way. As we get going, we are well into season three. I am so excited and full of such gratitude for each of you who turn in to listen week to week. And I'm thankful, too, for those of you who are sharing the podcast, and I encourage you to to do so whenever it comes to mind. And you might even be able to think of a friend or two who might relate to the story of the mom who's talking today who could benefit from hearing our interview. So you know that I love to bring interviews of moms who have been a part of my own mom journey. And so this week is a special week to do that with our guest, Nell Triplett. Nell is a sustainability professional and mother of two living in the San Francisco Bay Area, but joining us today from just outside Copenhagen, Denmark, and I'll let her tell more about how she landed there. She is someone who studies family, home, career, and parenting, and has been defined by many global influences. Nell is joining us today to discuss the challenges and rewards of raising citizens of the world. And I love that she has that perspective because as moms here, you know, we are raising world changers and that idea of being a global citizen is so key and more so day to day. She holds undergraduate degrees from UCLA and a master's degree from Middlebury Institute of International Studies and has worked across the federal government, 
nonprofit, and private sectors. She currently leads corporate climate action for a Silicon Valley software company. I'm so excited to have Nell join us. And, you know, I often will share how we got to know each other from when I know the guest. And it speaks to something that I talk about a lot on this podcast, which is the, the desire to connect with new moms. And I think that was one of the things that surprised me when I first became a mom. And if you've been around the podcast, you've heard me share that I, you know, really, I think was surprised by the, the drive and the, the increased desire to be around moms who are in a similar season of life as I am. You know, I definitely valued the input and feedback from moms who were a few years ahead of me or, you know, had already raised their kids or even moms or parents or women who didn't have kids as my friends. But there was something unique about being with other moms who were a few weeks or a few months, you know, around where my children were, because I knew they were going through similar things and we could swap notes and we could really get that support for one another. So Nell and I met in a baby yoga class through Blossom Birth, which I've shared here before as well. And I remember deciding to go to the class mainly because I wanted to have a way of exercising with my baby to rebuild, you know, that sense of fitness and strength that is a process once you've delivered, you know, your baby. And so what was a blessing that I didn't even really know I needed was the other moms who were in this class with their babies also who were caring about, you know, fitness and, and nurturing their new babies. And uh, there were, you know, two or three of us that connected, but the relationship that stuck was the one with Nell. So I am so thrilled to have Nell joining us today. How are you? Well, I'm excellent and uh, <laughs> want to greet you from Denmark. Yes. Hi, for Denmark. That's right. That's right. What is the greeting? How does it go? Hi. You can just say hi, um, but it's H-E-J. And I think it's very appropriate for a podcast <laughs> focused on uh, such global and universal themes that I'm speaking to you some 6,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah, and that's so incredible. And so tell us a little bit about how you ended up there now and, and in the past. Sure. Well, we are here and we're very fortunate because we uh, have dual citizenship in our family and my my husband is Danish. My kids are Danish American and we it's been a very long time since we've seen everyone back here. We're, we're Denmark where we used to call home. So we're here for a good long summer period working remote and also taking a little vacation in there too. Yeah. That's why that's why we're here right now and our our home, of course, is is in the U.S., but it's uh, it's a it's a nice time to be out here. Absolutely, the sun just went down. It's <laughs> I, it's nine o'clock here and p.m. New, p.m. and the sun just yeah. went down. Wow! If you if you ever come to the Nordics, you should definitely come in the summer. Yes, <laughs> having those extra hours of daylight will do a lot of good. Do us all a lot of good. Yeah, that's great. That's great, and. And yet it's such a big deal for many of us to think about, you know, say we're, you know, based in, a, in one country or based in America, to think about packing up our family and having to live internationally. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like the first time around? Sure. It was a daunting, it was a daunting uh, undertaking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm a born and raised Californian, although I've lived, uh, I got bit by the international bug early on. So. I grew up in the Santa Cruz mountains and uh, lived overseas when I was from ages four to six in Japan, then did a lot of exchange programs. So I went to Mexico, went to Luxembourg, went all over and, and then yeah. got to do a part of my university education in Spain. So 
I've definitely lived overseas. As it turns out, I also had an opportunity to do internships overseas and it didn't take me, I didn't have any hesitation when we had the opportunity to come up because Mm -hmm. I knew, and it turns out that this really would be one of the biggest gifts that we could give our kids was to have the experience of living Mm -hmm. in their other home. So we are a family very much with two homes in California, Mm -hmm. in Denmark. And I, I think that we'll always have, it's, it's both a challenge and a blessing because we have so, so many fabulous aspects of each of our life, each of our lives in both places, but it's also that feeling of dividing your time and, and, and then you don't have that, that same strong rooting to just one place. So I think, I think when we moved here, uh, it was, it was a shock primarily for me just because (laughs) As a Californian, uprooting with a newborn and a very willful three-year-old, we arrived. <laughs> we arrived in the middle of winter, mm-hmm. and it was it was it took a lot of finding my footing. My husband sure. was traveling a lot for work at that point. We had mm-hmm. a completely empty house because everything was still in the shipping container, mm-hmm. and it was definitely it was one of those things that really shows you what you're made of. Right. right. I, I fell, right. I fell flat on my face on multiple occasions, but those are the experiences that I think really do build character. Sure, so just sure. to highlight a couple of things about moving to a new country in a very cold climate in the middle of winter. <laughs> one of the things here is, is that the babies sleep outside. They take their naps outside in the freezing mm. cold. They have what's called a Volksiposa and you wrap the babies up and you put them in the pram and it's hilarious because you'll go down the streets of Copenhagen and there'll be prams lined up with <laughs> blissfully sleeping babies inside. And so I was trying to learn, how do I, how do I do this? How do I find the right, t- how do I make sure that my baby is safe and secure? And I'll tell you though, it sounds crazy. When I, when I told friends back home about this, they couldn't believe it. But then I said, if your child is not sleeping, come visit me. In January, <laughs> put your baby in this blanket in the pram, which I would call a mansion on wheels. Walk right. down the street with me, and your baby will be out, out. in two seconds. That's amazing. It's, it's really, I wonder what it is about that because, you know, of course, as you describe it, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, the cold of winter. And, you know, as, as Americans, you know, we traditionally are just about like, yeah, bundle the baby up and keep the baby warm, you know, indoors, you know, don't go outside if you, you know, can avoid it at all, much less, you know, have the baby sleep outside. So what do you think it is about that, that has well, babies sleeping so well I outside? Think I think a lot of it is the fresh air, mm. right? The fresh air. Think about when you go camping or when you do a, a, tre- a tremendously exertive hike, that air and that, that, uh, yeah, something about being outside just enables you to sleep so soundly. That's so so fascinating. I love it. I love it. So yeah, you know, as a tip, you know, if your child isn't sleeping inside during, maybe during the day, you know, (laughs) maybe not in the dead of winter, but right. (laughs) Yeah. Give it a try, right. Give it a try. But the truth is Copenhagen is also, it's, it's one of the most family-friendly cities that I've ever been in. So even though there were absolute challenges with adapting, especially finding my uh, footing as a mom of two, Mm -hmm. it really is an incredibly supportive environment. And when I, when I say, I mean, the built environment, I'm talking about the systems in place. I'm talking about everything, even the cobblestones on the 
on the roads are, are designed so that you have tracks for prams. You have mm. public rest, every single public restroom has a changing table. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, universal daycare for everyone mm. to, to attend there. It is paid for Education mm. is a part of, it's a part of the social welfare system. So it's a mm-hmm. very, very supportive system. And, and by the way, the daycares are all on this, on this, practically on the street that you live in. So there's no such thing as commutes uh, in in yeah. the very urban areas. It's an incredibly supportive environment. So that's something I'm hoping to talk a little bit more about in terms of the pros and the cons of, of living here. Absolutely, yeah, that's wonderful. And you know, before yeah, we get delve into that. Um, I like starting off really practical um, as far as food and feeding our family. And so I'm super curious, you know, what it was like and what it is like, right, to to shop and plan and feed your family when you're abroad, and then even you know when you come back home, how do you keep some of those traditions and meals going? Well, yeah, I think it's great that you start with the topic of food or a meal, because that for us, the food is not just nourishment, but mealtime is really sacred time in our family. So it's when we share stories, it's when we joke together. And more recently, it's when it's when in lieu of being able to travel in the age of COVID, it's, it's kind of our way to experience different parts of the world. So that's when I get to hear, you know, more de- details about my kids days. It's also when we get to um, make plans when we discuss, you know, what was the, what was the favorite thing of our day today when we're finished eating and the kids say, which is thank you for the food. We, we, we often, you know, the kids will leave the table after they bring their dishes. In, and then my husband and I now have the luxury of being able to connect as a pair, uh, because my daughter is, is five and my, my son is now seven. So it's really, really nice. It's really nice to connect as a family and also as a, as a couple. So That's as far great. as as far as food, if you want me to get into food <laughs> the specifics, right, right. I, I mean, it goes without saying. A lot of our health and eating habits are really put in place during our formative childhood years. So I was lucky enough to be raised by parents who loved making and sharing homemade food more often than not, with soup, salad, and a main course. So even though I was a girl raised in a remote part of the Santa Cruz Mountains, I was introduced to different foods at an early age because my family, as I said, moved overseas and because I I studied and and worked and had all kinds of opportunities to be in different parts of the world. So that's very much a part of that that variety. Variety is a spice of life that certainly extends into our cuisine. And we have a lot of different foods that we like to make, whether here in Denmark or in the U.S., that's so beautiful. I really, I really prioritized meals. Um, when we were living in Denmark, we, we, we tended to eat, you know, a lot of Danish fish or meatball dishes back in, in, in California, we make, we, well, we tend to just make large amounts of food so that we can have a meal for two nights. And sometimes that works really well with dishes that get better over time, like a Moroccan tagine or a beef bourguignon, which will taste even better with time. So that sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. some of how we make it work. That's some yeah. of how, some of the way that we're able to do homemade meals while also, you know, trying to stay on top of be- being working parents and everything else going on. Right, right. So then are you the main cook in your home? Do you cook, you know, every other night or do you do more like meal planning? And what well, do I'm, you Yeah, and what do people kind of traditionally do in Denmark? I'm, I'm lucky because I have a husband who is really enjoying making 
food as well. So he'll, he'll take He's been taking over more and more of the cooking. He's definitely very good at grilling and he loves pairing food and drink. So that's wonderful. Yeah. I, I, I find the same thing here in Denmark. It's a very egalitarian, uh, culture where oftentimes it's just whatever parent enjoys doing more of the cooking or sometimes just divide, they divide it evenly. Mm. One of the interesting cultural aspects here, well, they, they have fabulous grains in Denmark. So bread is one of the staples of the, of the diet. And this is something that having lived here has really been hard to, to, it's just, it's something I miss so much in the U S I have a very bad substitute for, which is the homemade Danish rye, rye bread. So we do still have rye bread in, in at home, but, but we, we definitely, we definitely miss the very rich grains. And, and also I would say some of the interesting tastes in Denmark, things like rhubarb, elderberry is a big flavor here. Preserved fish, different jams. Those are a lot of uh, mm. things that, that, you know, can sit for a long time in, in jars because you don't have access during the winter months to fresh fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables. And that, mm-hmm. that was a big, that was a big change. Something Fift. I had to get used. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, well, it's, it's tough in the winter, right? Because I right. do, I do, we do a heavy emphasis on fruits and veggies. And one of the things that I try to do is pack as much of both into every meal with the kids. Yeah. So you just have to, you have to get creative in the winter months here because you're not going to have local fresh produce like you do in California. Yeah. Yeah. So then I imagine the stews are a great way to incorporate, you know, chopped up veggies that just to absorb the flavors of the, the sauces that it's cooked in. Are there other things that, that, you know, you're able to do that for that the kids enjoy? Yeah. Well, kids often, yes. I mean, I don't do a separate meal, right? So the kids will eat if there's stuff they like, they don't like, you know, we just, we just roll with it. One of, one of the tricks that I would just highlight is when the kids are hungry, I'm preparing a meal, you know, they're wanting some kind of snack. We don't do a lot of snacks, but one of the things that I'll often do is just saute some kind of green that I know they're going to enjoy like broccolini, right? Little mm-hmm. olive oil, salt and pepper. It's delicious. Put it out and it's, and, it's ama- and it's quick and it's amazing how that will, the kids will snarf it down and they're, they're as happy as, as can be with that yeah. snack. Right. right. So right. Yeah. Another, and I was going to say, yeah, snacks are a great opportunity, right. Especially when they're hungry, right. If we think if not to go straight for a packaged snack, right. Or a processed snack, but to think what is a fruit or vegetable that we can you know, drop in there. And I have heard that tip before of almost like a first course, you know, when kids are hungry to do like a roasted veggies or grilled veggies or some kind of veggie platter, right. That they, while they're hungry are much more willing to, to dig into as the rest of the meal comes soon thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good. And thank you too, also, because we talk about the family meal quite a bit here and the specialness of it. And I loved how you kind of framed, you know, your, um, your perspective in that it's a, it's a sacred time and it can and should be that sacred time, distraction-free, right? No screens or TV or anything like that competing for the face-to-face conversation. That is so critical. And there's no, it's no wonder. And many of us grew up with it and took it for granted, but many, some of us didn't. And some cultures or some, you know, um, areas didn't have that as much. And so now it's a, it's a, it's a strategy, you know, that I share with families that I work with to incorporate more because every area of benefit to a child 
is supported by research. Like it improves just because a family has family meals at least five days a week without screens or distractions, such that speech is better, social skills are better, conversational skills are better, social skills, emotional regulation skills, you know, academics, I mean, mental health. I mean, I can go on and on. Like there's and long-term health benefits because of actually learning proper eating. So, so I, I, I have an interesting cultural, well, something that was a challenge for me actually moving here and, and it's actually not just me, but other American parents visiting or living in Denmark have commented, this might be surprised to your listeners about the strong candy and soda culture here. Uh, And I know that we often think of this as an American American thing, so it's very, very surprising, but there, there is something here called Friday Slick, which is. Friday candy and the kids get bags of candy <laughs> after, after dinner and they watch TV every Friday. Now we've, we've never had a TV, so that's not in, that's not part of our, our tradition uh, tradition, but yeah. my husband definitely insists on Friday slick for our kids. <laughs> and aside from that, we, we, aside from that, we really don't pile the sugar on because the shaping of our taste preferences, of course, are heavily influenced by what we're exposed to from an early age. Absolutely. Oh, that's funny. I mean, maybe it's something that has just been adapted to because I know we love kind of our Friday movie night, right? So for us, it's more like the popcorn, right? That, you know, we'll we'll enjoy as we watch. But I love that, you know, it sounds like a fun way to end up the week. It's like Halloween every Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. Yeah, great. Well, you know, as we, you know, shift then to talk about, you know, your, your, some of your interests and your passions, tell me a little bit about, you know, how you came to the passion, you know, of the, the work that you do and just the global, you know, citizenship that you have for yourself. Absolutely. So I'm a person with, with zest for so many different aspects of life, but I would say there is one and always has been one overriding theme in my life, my studies, my family, uh, where my career has taken me. And you already mentioned this in the mm-hmm. intro, but that's because I got bitten at an early age by an international bug. And this passion for just the world outside of you know our borders has shaped and yeah. really defined my life to date. So it brings challenges, as I mentioned, as a family, because it, it means that we have two parts of the world that are home, but as you yeah. can also imagine, it brings incomparable rewards. Absolutely. Um, so, so that, as I mentioned, that is part of, you know, it defined what I studied in college. And then I got to go out to Washington DC as an intern at the state department. And that's how I met my husband. And so okay. you can see how this is all connected and yeah. even moving as back it often to, is. <laughs> as it often is. And even with my current work, I was able to work overseas because my company happened to have an office in Copenhagen. As, as far as what that means for my work, I studied international environmental policy and had a, a terrific opportunity to work across the uh, federal government and nonprofit and now private sectors, which has given me so much, so much experience, so much different experience. So I now, my work now encompasses leading a software companies, corporate social responsibility. That includes reporting, what we call ESG reporting, strategy, and sustainability initiatives. Obviously, sustainability is something that everyone is talking about a lot, especially in California, mm-hmm. uh, also in Denmark, because it is a very big theme in, in, in Denmark. And 
so for a company, basically, that means that I'm working on the, the emissions reduction target of the company's direct operations and the specific programs that are going to go into delivering that target. The company also has a carbon neutrality initiative that in, in involves, as I was saying, inventorying all of the company's emissions across its global operations, and then essentially offsetting that footprint on an annual basis. So it's it's a really fantastic intersection, I think, of work that I feel passionately about and utilizing business because in the absence of government action, which we've seen in the U.S. in particular, it's really time for the private sector to step up and lead the charge because they really can move the needle in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. And I know a little bit about it from my father's work. He uh, studied urban planning and his career mainly was spent working for of the Los Angeles area air quality management district. And they had to support companies in how they implemented their emissions, right? And so that often was around construction. So that means if they were if a company was going to, you know, build or have any kind of construction happening, how are they going to reduce the particulates, the the sand, the dust, the things that would be brought up into the air so that it wouldn't add to the pollution in the LA area. That was a huge thing, you know? So when we think about the environment and sustainability and carbon, I think for, you know, the layperson, it's really about how can we protect our earth? How can we protect our air? How can we protect our, you know, our lands from pollutants, right? Or things that go against, um, you know, healthy living in, a, in an area that often goes unnoticed or unchecked if we just think about profit and, you know, living kind of the convenient lives that we want to live. Absolutely. And climate change, let's be clear, is, is the work of this moment. We are yeah. in a very big transition. We're seeing it in real time. We're, yeah. we're experiencing impacts that, that many didn't even think was, would be possible in 2021. So yeah. I think, I think that, you know, this is something that is, is, is it's really important work. And it's also one of those things where you, the frustrations on a day-to-day -day basis are that you feel you're not doing enough. <laughs> All right. Can we ever do enough? But I think that your work is so important. I'm so glad that, you know, you're able to do that and share some of that with us. Cause it, I think just reminds us, right. What can we as a family do in our little corner of the world to, you know, in, improve the quality Right. And for our family, I know it, we often talk about recycling, right? And food scraps and versus trash, you know. So that's one of the things I try to talk to my kids about. The little that we can do as far as making sure that, you know, what we can compost because our care area provides composting services, right? So what we can compost, we put in the compost. What we can recycle, we put in the recycle. And what we can, you know, put in the garbage. So even just on a basic level for young children, right? You can introduce these our sense of what we can do to just to make our world a little bit better in important ways. Modeling behavior and developing awareness are absolutely two critically important things across really any issue, but certainly yeah. on, on this topic as well. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. So I was taking my maternity leave and thinking maybe it'll be a bit longer maternity leave than I expected when we moved out here. And then my boss called me and said, so your daughter's coming up on a year. Are you interested in going back to work? And so uh, we had this, we worked out this really great arrangement where I was brought on as a contractor and able to work part-time, which 
for the the early years of my my kid with my kids, it was really important for me to have that balance and feel like I wasn't missing out. But at the same, I wasn't missing out on anything from their childhood. But at the same time, that I was able to stay connected to the workplace. And I wish, I wish in both parts of the world that there were more opportunities to support young moms like that because I think we, I think part time work is such a powerful powerful way to, to, to support young moms. And it really is, it's very much this thing where you either do the full, the full job or you are stay at home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think finding that work-life balance is kind of the, you know, the eternal question, right. And the, you know, the, the main overarching challenge, if, you know, you're a mom who wants to work outside of the home or has, you know, different gifts and talents that you want to share in that way. And yet you also want to make sure that you're investing in your children and have the energy and you know the time right to to spend and invest with them and so i i, I love the, your point about the support of the community around you to do that because it does take a workforce right it does take rules and regulations right that are more supportive and sadly in america it's it's among the the lowest amount of time right you know mother leave family leave after, you know, childbirth, you know, six weeks, you know, eight weeks, if uh, 10 weeks, if that, right. And you have to really like negotiate often if you want more than that. And so a paid secured leave, right. And it, it varies, right. There's variety depending on where you go and where you work as well, how easy or hard it is to, to do that. So no, I think it's so important what you're talking about, because fundamentally in the U S we have, we don't have a system that supports working parents. Maybe I can talk a little bit about the difference here yeah. in Denmark, but you know, this wasn't always the case in California, California mm-hmm. during world war II had federal money that was used for public facilities to support childcare. Mm-hmm. So that was a defining part uh, in, in California's history where there were lots of mothers going to work to support the war effort. And of course, we had an opportunity almost 50 years ago where Congress passed bipartisan legislation to to help create universal federal federally funded subsidized daycare. But that was Nixon who who vetoed the Comprehensive Child Development Act. And we are paying working parents are paying the price 50 years later. So, you know, one of our missteps as a country to invest in future generations, I think, really came under a glaring spotlight last year with the pandemic. And I saw, you know, reports of something like 8,000 daycare facilities in the state shutting down, making it even more challenging for working parents. And I, I, I think that this is such an important topic since we're discussing about, you know, how we want to change the world. And if there is one thing that I think is a really, there's a huge potential in certainly developed parts of the world, like the U.S., it would be to look at some models where it is supporting, there are models that support dual income households. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I I don't want to go too much into the social welfare system, but essentially, Mm -hmm. as I was saying, you have you have daycare is provided. They, these are facilities that are right close to wherever you live. And mm-hmm. you have, you have, when you're, when you don't have to worry about the care of, of your child, you're able to focus on work. Also getting mm-hmm. to that work-life balance work weeks here are 35 hours a week. I just want, I want all your listeners, yeah, you know, in the U S really to think in. about what that would mean. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, 
finding a system that is more friendly and more supportive of working parents is probably one of the best things we can also do just for competitiveness, because we have so many qualified people who are staying at home because they are serving in the role of its primary caregiver, right? So Mm -hmm. it could be good for our competition. It's certainly important for, I think, thriving society. And it's very very important for, for growing our labor pool. So anyway, yeah. those are those are some of the broader policy <laughs> issues right. that I'm bringing into this conversation, but I think it's really important. So important. You know, that's also a huge part of my story in terms of the reality of motherhood in the U.S. versus in Denmark. And yeah. every place has its has its pros and cons. So this is not to say one place is better than the other. I think it's I think it's very important to be honest, right? Any part of, of the world is going to have benefits and drawbacks. And that is certainly the same. I will say that I feel very fortunate that we spent some of the early years with our kids, with our kids in Denmark because of that, because of that support. Yeah, that's fabulous. And I'm, you know, makes me think about, you know, some of the things that, you know, maybe like we, even you and I shared, you know, when your older child was born, as far as, you know, mommy and me groups and, you know, mommy yoga, right? Like, Oh, you tell me a little bit about if and how those kinds of supports are available because you've already mentioned, you know, the the childcare and then the protected work. You know, isn't protected work something like a year or two in some of the European countries? Yeah, so you have you have a year leave, right? And mm-hmm. typically parents here divide it between the mother and the father. Oh, so okay. oftentimes the typical model is the mom will take 10 months, the dad will take 2 months. I think it's incredibly healthy for also Mm -hmm. the bonding of, you know, for both parents, right? Right. And yes, that, that takes a tremendous stress off the the mother, because I don't know about you, Akua, but I mean, if, when Mm -hmm. I did go back to work with my son, I I, I had six months essentially, which is very, very long by us standards, but it it broke my heart leaving him. He just, and it was really hard. Yeah. A year as I had with my daughter, that was kind of a different, it was, I could tell that she, she was going to benefit from being in the Vogestu or the daycare here. I could tell that the care was going to be good. I, it was just, she was, it was a different time. And I think that that's, that's what you really call investment in future generations, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yes. And and I wonder about you know, how like friendship was, right? Because I think sometimes making new friends when you travel or when you live in a new place, you know, or building that that community, because you certainly had family, which is awesome when you can move to another country and have the family support. But tell me a little bit about, you know, maybe non-family support or what that looked like. You, you <laughs> must have known what I already wanted to talk about, which was, which is community and community is huge to support working moms. So I have obviously the benefit from my husband having grown up in Copenhagen. We have strong connections, strong family connections, and also strong friend connections. But what I wasn't expecting is, is the neighborhood that we moved to. It was, I think it was a very atypical street that we lived on lots of young families, but we became, it's because when you have young kids, things become so much more localized. And also it's this thing where impromptu get-togethers work so much better than planning things in advance. Cause you just never know how your kids are going to be, or you never know if the time's really going to be right, or if you're going to have too much going on, but just running into neighbors, Oh, come on over. And 
we would grill at their place or we would have some meal together, some just fabulous time in the backyard if the sun was out. It was really a fabulous, fabulous community that we we built on our street. I guess I would say it was already there and we just tapped into it in the time that we lived in Copenhagen. And those some of those neighbors are lifelong friends that we we see when we come back. So it's a really amazing support network also in that way. And I will say, moving back to California, because the, the Bay Area in particular has so many people coming and going. This is very specific to the Bay Area in part because of the economy. And I, I love the international flair of the Bay Area, but it, it does mean that it's really rare to meet someone else who grew up in the Bay Area, increasingly rare. And then COVID has also accelerated the amount of people coming and going even more. So that that was another really, I, I think those those the childcare, the child support system and community were, were more of our challenges moving back to the, the States. Now we're past the childcare difficulties since my daughter's nursery school is a part of my son's school in, in, in California. And the, the school that we go to is a huge bright spot in our life. It's it's a really amazing place in Menlo Park that is very focused on development of the whole child and not focused just on teaching to the test. Or, or the fierce competitive nature of the Bay Area, but rather just focusing on developing a love of learning. And it really combines areas very fundamental to me as a person that I hope my kids will also develop. So me, I'm talking about the outdoors as a classroom in and of itself. And in addition, the school was founded on progressive principles where the school is really a lab for social justice work. I think it's an incredibly important time that, my, that, that that is the school that I'm choosing for my kids. And I think it's so great. I see that my son at age seven, he's getting introduced to a much more realistic understanding of the systems that work in this country, in, in the US than I ever did. And they're having very early conversations about local and global justice issues. So if we really do want a more equitable, just world, education is going to have to pay, play very prominently into that. Yeah, yeah. And that's a fabulous transition into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the the whole social justice piece, right? Especially with the murder of George Floyd last year and what that did for, you know, the conversation around race and race relations, not only in our country, but around the world. That, you know, it's incredible that your children are in a school that is really, like you said, designed, it sounds like, to explore some of these issues. The school, the school is was founded a hundred years ago by someone named Josephine Dubnik, and I encourage I encourage people to look into her. She was such a role model and ahead of her time in, in in terms of the summer camps that she had at a place called Hidden Villa. In terms of what she did to help families during internment in World War II, she was really a very very progressive thinker, and and as I said, someone who 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 had this concept of, of social justice before we were necessarily calling it that. So that is a huge part of the, the school's curriculum and their legacy. And I think that I think that the classroom is a really great, meaningful place to start those conversations early. And especially with the developments in the US of, of the past two years, I mean, for, for a very long history, but certainly it's become becoming more widely acknowledged throughout the US how we have had systematic uh, oppression and how, uh, you know, we are not where we really 
think we should be in 2021 as far as race and class. That's so powerful. And I am curious, you know, if you take it, you know, another step to how your own family or how this has kind of impacted you and how you talk about social justice, you know, with your children, you know, you've already mentioned, you know, that your husband is Danish and your children are, dual, you know, your family's dual citizens. So tell us a little bit about, you know, on a personal level, what this means for you, your ethnicity and how your family, you know, was raised, how you were raised within your family, and then what that means for how you're talking to your children about these issues. Absolutely. So for for your listeners who can't see me, I'm of European descent and my family has been in California for multiple generations. I I think that, you know, our upbringing was was really is very different than how kids are being raised today. At least I hope I hope that's the case because we were just not exposed to the stressors of race and class when when we were being raised simply by by virtue of of how we looked. And that's such a defining thing for so many in the U.S. and not as many in a homogenous country like Denmark. But regardless, it's something mm-hmm. that that is is also figuring very prominently in conversations here. Mm-hmm. So last year in the U.S., obviously, it was a huge year of reckoning with the murder of George Floyd, and I undertook work, ongoing work, I should say, to understand and to fully understand how privilege works. And what that means from a day-to-day existence. I think our kids need to be attuned to this. And one of the best ways is just to start with conversations. It's also through exposure of talking about different figures in our history, diverse figures in our history who changed the course of history. Mm-hmm. Also to develop empathy with our children, asking questions. So, you know, do you think that's fair? And how would mm-hmm. you respond? What would you have done if you were there? How would that make you feel? All these questions are, I think are so important for understanding different perspectives, different experiences that are going to be key to making, making our country a better place, making all countries better places. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, such an important time. And I'm so glad that we're at a place, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's taken till, you know, 2020, 2021, right, for us as a country to talk on a more, you know, just a more practical level or more, hopefully having a more elevated conversation, right? You know, I think growing up in California, I was, you know, as a, you know, Ghanaian American, right? Growing up in California, I was naive enough to think that racism didn't exist here, right? You know, because I, what I knew of it is the blatant, right, version in the South, right, during the civil rights eras and slavery, of course, right? But the, the fascinating thing is how subtle it can be now, right? The the differences, um, you know, in how you're perceived or the assumptions made about you or, you know, how you're treated, you know, just because of how you look. And so I, I'm so glad to hear that, you know, as a family, you're talking more, you know, explicitly about it in ways that, you know, many families and people of color have had to, because it's just been in our face or in our experience so much more, you know, than, than, anybody would like to to admit but yeah i'm curious how your children are are taking to it or how they're kind of how you see that they're absorbing it given the school and the context that you've chosen to put them in given the fact that they've lived in two different countries two different continents what do you see in how they're kind of growing right to to be that that global citizen Sure. And even before I talk about how they're taking, t- taking to, to just more exposure, 
I, I would say I'm so glad that this podcast, your podcast is coming at a really important time mm-hmm. and to talk about issues such as social justice and race, race in, in the US is this is this is the time that these yeah. topics should be brought up in I think every context, every context possible. Because that's how you're going to be able to change the conversation. And that's also how you're going to get people to hear more about what these experiences mean. So as far as you asked, you know, how, how are my, my kids developing? I mean, you know, it's obviously very early on. So my, my son is seven. I am so impressed by the curriculum in his classroom. And I really kind of use that as the, that's, that's, I'm following their curriculum. So I get to learn through what he's learning. And I think that that's, I think that that's a great setting for him to have some of those very important conversations. I think that, I think that, you know, we, we, we discuss things in what is an age appropriate way. So hopefully that's going to get a little bit more, you know, that will mean something different, for instance, two years from now. right? Right. Right. But I, he very much, you know, I, I, they take part in different protests, for instance. So there, it's, it's, mm. a, it's a huge social activism is a big part of the fabric of the school. And whether or not he fully understands what that right, means, right. Mm, probably it's limited. But I think that the idea that you need to take a stand on issues that are important. And, and by the way, I've also at an early age brought my kids to climate change protests. So th- th- mm-hmm. it's, it's not an, un- it's not unfamiliar mm-hmm. territory to be taking part in, in social activism. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's a great thing to have kids get exposed to it even early, like at, at his age. Right. I think it's right. a terrific, terrific opportunity for growth and for understanding and for exploring. Right. And I think two things, one planting seeds, you know, so much of parenting, I think is planting seeds that you know, get watered over time that, you know, break earth, start to blossom and grow. And so I imagine that the seeds of, attend, you know, the memory of attending protests, right, at a, at a young age will be part of the seeds that shape his life, right, or shape the course of, of his life, even just for you as living overseas when you were young, right, with your family, planted seeds for, you know, your interests and your, you know, the direction that you chose to, to take in your life. So I, th- I think that is such a huge thing that we can do for our children is look for those seed planting opportunities, right? And even if we don't necessarily know exactly the right words to say, or we don't, ex- it doesn't exactly come out, you know, perfect or, you know, what is perfect? At least we're, we're making that effort. We're being honest and we're saying that it's okay to talk about these things. In fact, we, it's important that we do because um, a lot of it was, you know, I, I feel like as growing up, it, a lot of it was we don't talk about it or we, we don't talk you know, about it in, in certain places, right? Or we don't even try to acknowledge it. Whereas now I think we understand that the talking and acknowledging and processing through for children is a huge part of their developmental you know, you know, process, right? Their developmental path um, as they're laying those pathways in their brain to be able to make sense of what they see here and experience around any topic, including race. Absolutely. And giving them exposure and a wide world view, which has obviously been a big part of my spiel on this (laughs) this episode. I think having that from an early age is just, that's giving them the foundation to be global citizens, at least I hope for. Right. Exactly. We, we, 
We also used the U.S. and Europe as launching pads to explore different parts of the world, even when the kids were really young, including the Middle East and North Africa. And I think I think interest and appreciation for differences is really the foundation for change. Hopefully positive change. Yeah. And in your case, you're not just talking about it, but you're, you're going there, you're living it, right. You're taking them, you know, with you. And so I I said two things though, you know, the first one being the planting seeds and the second thing being access. And, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about, you know, access to, for example, you know, the school that, you know, I have to say, I haven't heard very much about. I think you're the one that's introducing the school, you know, to me. And it sounds incredible as a place, you know, to be able to take your children to. And I think you said it just so happens to be, you know, a reasonable driving distance from your home, right? And so wouldn't it be amazing if there were more schools like this all over the Bay or all over the country so that more people could have access to such a rich, you know, inspirational education, right? From the ground up, as you said, right? And so I think access is the other huge piece. Of, of of progress, right? That we want to increase that access to, you know, all these measures, right? Uh, the education, the the daycare, right? The the health care, right? The good and the clean environment. So um, those are, are, I think, big issues that we as a community and as a as a country are grappling with now. And you know, I think the president has made some great proposals as far as trying to increase access to all the different things that we're talking about. And so we'll have to see as it goes through Congress, you know, what ends up getting funded and what ends up getting passed and approved. But we have to, we have to work together um, and talk about these things and, and advocate for, for change because it's, 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 it's like, you know, taken so long for us to get to this point, right? Where we really, I, I would have envisioned us being farther in this process. Absolutely. I think, I think access is such an important part of the conversation. And I hope that, I mean, that's exactly what, (laughs) that's what people in DC need to hear. It's about expanding access and it's, and that is going to provide the opportunities for everyone. Right. Right. That's incredible. Thank you. So as we then, you know, shift a little bit, you know, I see you as a mom changing the world, promoting sustainability, you know, in, in terms of your work and also as a mom, you know, who bravely, you know, packed up and moved your family across the world to, to raise them in a, a different place. Are there some, you know, tips or strategies that you might have for maybe parents who are considering the same? I can speak, you know, for myself a little in that I've always had that as a, as a dream, right? To be able to take my family and my children and be able to, you know, visit for an extended period of time, if not live, right in another country or culture. And yet the reality of that seems so kind of far away in in many ways for many families. And, you know, there's so many things to factor in, right, to that. Not only is the the logistics of moving, you know, but the finances around that and the, I mean, even the, you know, the race and race relations in the area, you know, how will I, my family be received, you know, in the country where I'm going versus, you know, another family because of, you know, how we look, right? There's so many factors, you know, and you think about safety and how long, you know, it makes sense to stay somewhere. So I wonder if there's some advice that you could share, because I imagine I'm not the only one, right, who thinks about, even if it's as simple as traveling, right, to another country, if you haven't done it before, you know, what would you advise? 
I, I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of families. I personally know a lot of families who would love to bring their kids overseas for a period of time, exactly for some of the reasons that I was outlining exposure to different culture, exposure to different way, just different ways of ways life. Of living. And, yeah, mm-hmm. different ways of living. And so there were a few things that really came together. And, and this is why we jumped on it. One is it's, it's so much easier to move overseas when your kids are young. And the, the reason it's so much easier is because you don't feel you're uprooting them from, from something. So even though I struggled to, to find my footing because I was also just figuring out, you know, <laughs> as a mom of two, I was figuring it all out. It's just one of those things where from, for the kids adjustment, it is really, really amazing how quickly they, how quickly, for instance, my son who was three, just picked up Danish. I mean, he heard it. Mm-hmm. He only, he was only hearing it from his dad, but, but he became fluent. I mean, you just can't. And, and it was the same thing when I was little, I learned Japanese very quickly because our, my parents sent us to the local schools. Yeah. So yeah. these are really, really, you know, timing can be very important. Another thing that I think is really important. And yes, the finance piece, of course, is, is a, a part of this. So if you have the opportunity through work, just, just, jump on it, just jump on that, because you never know when you're going to have that opportunity again. There, there were probably a hundred reasons why we, we could have said, we're not going to go, but we, we knew that it was such a rare opportunity through my husband's job and everything else just coming together that we just, we decided to do it. So it was a big risk. And my husband always says big risk, big reward. And that's what it, that's what it was. The thing that I would say for moving is, is just if I were to give advice to myself, you know, I, I would, I would say, take it, take it easy, take it a little yeah, bit easier. Yeah. I was so I'm such a person that wants everything in order, that I really needed to probably enlist some more help because it, it was it was, it was pretty wild packing down the house and getting renters and moving and then, you know, trying to get it set up. It was trying to figure out how everything worked here was absolutely a challenge for me. Um, I did another thing that I did as soon as my daughter was, was off to Vogesu, the the daycare is I did enlist in part-time Danish classes. So I was working part-time and I was doing part-time Danish classes. And as soon as I was able to just make advances with the language. It's amazing how much I felt a part of this place. Mm-hmm. Language, language mm-hmm. is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I was looking forward to talking to people and suddenly I wasn't yeah. con- conscious of everybody here. All the Danes speak fluent English. So yeah, that's yeah. a non-issue, but it becomes a wonderful thing when you're able to you're able to steer the conversations, right? right. So that's a really big thing, I think, for feeling feeling, you know, at home in a place. Language right. really is big. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, like you said, for children, it can be a fabulous quick, you know, thing because their brains are like sponges for language. You know, when we look at speech acquisition, language acquisition, I, I was a research assistant for that. And as in my undergraduate years, I mean, it really is like, as you said, such a a pivotal time where in those, you know, first five, if you can, but even after that, right, just as the older you get, it just tends to be a little bit harder for most people. Now, there's a few, you know, special ones who can pick up languages, (laughs) like they pick up new clothes. (laughs) But for most of us, 
you know, it, it's a different, it's a different process and a different way of learning once you hit that five, you know, six-year-old mark. Yeah. And we're keeping it up at home in the U S because there are different materials that you can take advantage for teaching your kids languages. And, and so that's one thing, but the other thing is just reading. Right. And so yeah. reading to my husband reads to the kids every night in Danish. And then so my son now he reads in Danish. And so then my yeah. daughter is interested. She's, she's only too. five, but she's going to be interested yeah. in also all of that. And so it's this fabulous self-reinforcing mm-hmm. um, system. And I think that that also will leave the door open so that if there's another time in our lives, when we we do want to come back here, we have that, we have that option. Right. Right. They have that language and they have that comfort, like you said, and familiarity and thanks. (laughs) Yeah. And they have the strong bonds, you know, they have close friends, they have wonderful relations with their family here. So it's, it's a terrific, it's, it's a terrific thing that, that we, as I said, it was really a gift. I think that we gave the kids. Yeah. And continue to give by keeping it up. And I, I'm glad you you mentioned that plug about like, like learning languages here, right? Like there's nothing that stands in our way from, you know, with all the online tools, signing our kids up or signing ourselves up, right. For, for language learning, you know, options, especially for say a country that we want to visit someday. Right. And so especially with all the homeschool and the online school options, there's so many ways that you can you know, plug right into that for you and your children. And then also that reading to them at night. You know, our children should, you know, even as they get older, it can feel like, oh, we don't need the bedtime routine or we don't need to read with them every day. But that reading nightly, you know, or at least, you know, for, you know, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, you know, at the minimum is amazing for just any, you know, literacy promotion, right? But, but especially if you have another language that you're working on too. To say nothing of how cozy it is to be snuggled <laughs> up in bed is one of our favorite story times. times. It's one of our yeah. favorite times. And yeah. we really, the kids, if, if for instance, we, we have some event that's late and there's, you know, we rarely can't do a story, but if it's even a shortened story, they will both be so upset. And yeah. I think of that as a really, that's a good thing to be upset. It's okay. Yes, you can, yes. you can be upset about that. About missing that for sure. For sure. That's great. So now as you know, we're winding down, I love talking about, you know, kind of the word of the year has been renewal in all that's been going on and all that we are in recovery mode from with the pandemic, even as it's fluctuating and we, you know, kind of, there's so many unknowns still about what's happening over time. I don't know how things are, you know, in Denmark, you can mention a little bit about that if you'd like, but what does renewal, you know, mean for you in this year that we're in? This is a, this is a hard question. So I, I say it's hard because last year, actually, I wrote in my journal that it was really time to take more time for myself, uh, time to read, time to do yoga, to go on longer runs, to play my violin more, all those things that we find for renewal or for yeah. um, finding balance. And then of course, three months later, the world shut down and all working parents were brought to their knees. Right. So, I mean, I gave everything I had last year. And the sad part is that we were the lucky ones. We didn't get sick. We didn't lose any family to COVID. We had so much flexibility with our jobs. I mean, our our school was open. So it was just, it was, I can't even imagine how people have dealt with, with what the pandemic has brought. But I think, again, if there's something good to come out of 
the pandemic and just as you were talking about a time for renewal, it is hopefully that we're able to seek things a little more clearly. I think a lot yeah. of people were able to shift priorities in their life. It's very easy with young kids and with everything that happens working as, you know, two full-time working parents is you, you just kind of go through the motions. And if there's one thing that, that absolutely cleaned the slate, it was a pandemic that shut the world down. And I think, I think that that's going to be a huge part of, yes, at least my own personal desire to explore renewal as, as, as really a place to, to get, get that better balance for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about that a lot here in that 2020, you know, was one of those levelers and one of those, you know, opportunities in many ways as everything shut down to really re- reevaluate and prioritize, like you said, and just figure out, you know, we, no, nothing is promised and guaranteed right to us, you know? So that, yeah, I think that's a, a great, you know, perspective to shine on really taking the time, you know, to uh, assess and evaluate what is important, what is important now, and how can we restructure our lives to the best of our ability to to prioritize the most important things? Yeah. And I think it goes with, I think it goes without saying for most of your guests on the the (laughs) podcast that, that, that is my favorite job hands down is, is, is being a mama. And so it wasn't for, for, in my case, it wasn't necessarily a given that I would be a mom. Um, I'm surprised mm-hmm. every day by how much, how rich my life is because of my kids, yes. because I mean, kids teach yes. you, they teach you devotion. They teach you yes. patience. Yes. They <laughs> teach you how to let go, uh, which is invaluable for someone That's like right. me. Yeah. They teach you sacrifice and selflessness. And then during the pandemic, they also, they taught me really how adaptable adaptable they are right yeah. and I saw that when we were here when we moved uh, 6,000 miles from California I yeah. saw how, how easily they were able to adapt but it's it's the same thing with a major life event such yeah. as a pandemic so I think again that within the context of this really tough event it did bring into focus that much more into focus, really how much I love being a mom and, yeah. you know, the things that you you thought you couldn't do, we couldn't have imagined we could do before a pandemic. Right. Suddenly it, it is possible because of these tiny beans. That's right. So, That's right. Yeah. I always say it is the hardest and yet best job that, that we have is being a mom uh, in all that we're juggling. And so that's, that's awesome. Great. So then um, as far as self-care, you know, you mentioned that, you know, prioritizing self-care was something that you had wanted to do more of. And so, you know, how are you able to take care of yourself in the midst of everything, you know, that you're juggling both here and abroad? Well, I'm starting right now by being on vacation. So I think (laughs) taking time out, taking time out and, and really, really using that vacation to the maximum is it's more feasible because I'm in a different setting and I have to say it, it is inspiring. It's fabulous to just be in a different place. Yeah. Not everybody wants that. And many people benefit from just being at home. But in my case, it's something that really, really is, it it brings that sense of renewal. So vacation is a a terrific time to start that. In addition, I, I like to incorporate certain things into my week, whether or not I'm on vacation which is 
time for reflection. So I like to journal, although I don't do it enough. And then I write about, I write just about my kids' development. That's something that's really important for me just to record that because this time is going so quickly. And that's another thing that I would really encourage people, even if you feel you don't have time in your day, there's already too much to do. Just your your child's only this age once. Once, And it's incredible how independent my two kids already are. Even, I mean, just at ages seven and five, by the way, they might be that much more independent as a result of the last year's events. Like they had to be a little bit more there's, and that might not be a bad thing, but, but, but there is, there is so much to capture before it's over. And uh, so so in addition, I, I in addition to writing, I, I mentioned I love reading. I would love to read a little bit more, to be able to use use books to just uh, expand my own thinking and my own my own exposure. Also, so that's that's one thing I would love to do more of. I do do yoga regularly, and I try to fit in runs here and there. I mentioned I love cooking. We, we, we do, we do have a wonderful garden now. So that's another thing is just, we spend a lot of time outside and that's an important part of our life uh, in California. It was something that was harder to do here. I'm going to be perfectly honest. It was really harder to have that outdoor life here in Denmark, at least for half the year, because, because it's just a a very severe winter climate. So and in California, we also, we, we do a lot of, we do different sports. We do uh, skiing with now with the kids at, up in the mountains. It's not, it's not feasible here. So even though it's cold, mm-hmm. the winter sports are not a, as much a part of the life. That was True. a big, that was a big challenge for mm-hmm. just feeling that I could live life to the fullest. It, it was, it's different. I think if you're raised here, because you don't necessarily, you, you find you find your rhythm. For yeah. me, I didn't necessarily find that outdoor rhythm in the way that makes me feel fully alive. Yeah, yeah. I was going to talk, I was going to ask you a little bit about the outdoor living, as you mentioned early on, right? The fresh air and all of that. And so that, it's interesting that you would assume that skiing and like the winter sports would be a big thing there. Just from it is in Sweden and Norway, but, but <laughs> Denmark does not have the mountains. So you gotta uh, drive. You gotta drive some hours. Hours to, to get, to get there. to the. I yeah. see. I see. So, what do people do in the winter time? Well, there's actually a winter bathing tradition where I know a oh. number of people who <laughs> run into the canals or jump into the fjords. It's it, it gets your endorphins flowing like nothing else, and then you can <laughs> run it back into either a sauna or some warm place. But it's wow. um, yeah, it's it's quite a quite a thing. It gives a lot of energy, I think, to people during those real months. dark, yeah, dark months. Yeah, yeah. But but one thing that one thing, especially in the urban areas, and even not the urban areas necessarily, there's a very strong biking culture and it's I mean it's trans it's transportation it's also many people's hobbies but uh, there are more bikes than than people in Copenhagen (laughs) it doesn't matter if it's icy they have immaculately maintained bike paths you can get I I would get into my office much quicker by bike 20 Mm. minutes flat than taking a bus across town so it's it's an amazing way to keep up your your uh, just even a little bit of exercise in the winter time yeah that's fabulous 
I would definitely have to, I think, develop thicker skin and thicker blood to handle the cold of water and riding bikes. Akua, I actually, I actually thought of myself as the hardy type because I backpacked <laughs> because I used to do some long runs. I got to tell you, the people here put me to shame. They're so yeah. tough and yeah. I am so weak by comparison. <laughs> yes, I can't be cold. And I, I talk about California as being cold. So it's, it's one of those things that you do adapt to your climate, you know, and where you are. So it's what uh, you know, awesome. right? It's yeah. what you know. So yeah. and the bo- human body is incredible in that way as well. Yeah. Great. Great. So was there any last words that you wanted to share? I know we've talked about a lot of incredible things. Thank you so much for you know sharing your, your time and perspective with us. Anything else before we wrap up? Well, I would just maybe talk a little bit about the importance of, I would say just, you know, first and foremost, we want to be loving moms, right? right. But it's also, and, and, and a patient and understanding, but it's also a big one here that I think is very important both in the U.S. and in Denmark, anywhere, anywhere, yeah, is just yeah. being present. And the reason right. I bring this up is because we live in a time where people have so so many distractions, so many devices, and, and kids are perceptive. They can feel mm-hmm. when someone is listening and when someone wants to be there. Yeah. I see it so often where I'm just amazed People aren't even necessarily looking at their babies as much, right. even when they're pushing the pram. And I, I just think this is an underappreciated area of, or yeah. issue with modern day parenting. So I bring that up because that is something I think I, I, I think I don't ha- I have zero regrets. I think my, in that I have many regrets because we have obviously we are imperfect human beings. Right. And for the new moms out there, the new papas out there, right? You got to, you got to, you got to be okay with not being perfect because you should also model that humans, you you should just model for your kids. We make mistakes. You can learn to apologize. You can, but the one area I do feel very content with as a mom is that I think my kids know I'm 100% present when I'm there, I am there. And I think that this is a really, really important issue an important time. And it connects to all the themes that we've talked about today, Akua, from from being present to what living in America is and what that means to race and class, what uh, being present means if you go to a different country, and if you're able to show a degree of cultural appreciation, right? Right. All of that, it, it starts with being present. So hopefully those are just my, my final words, because yeah. I think this is a really important theme that, that is important as, as, you know, for parenting and it's important for everything else that we want to do in life. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an incredibly important point that we don't talk enough about. And I think I, in my coaching work, focus a lot on that uh, because I, I completely agree in that there's so much pull that pulls our attention away from the present moment, right? In addition to technology, but even just our thinking and wondering and worrying and planning and, you know, reflecting and all of these things in the pre- can pull us away from the present moment. And especially when our children are there, like you said, it, it impacts them. If our mind is, you know, in a hundred different places, uh, except for where they are, right? Mm-hmm. So I very much appreciate that, that wisdom, you know, that you're emphasizing because it is, I think, foundational right? To being the engaged and the uh, supportive 
and be in, you know, kind of as, as in control of ourselves and our emotions as we can be when we can be present because so much of the overflow of emotion, the frustration, the dis, you know, discipline that goes in a direction we don't want or, or we don't prefer or you know, saying things that we regret. I think a lot of that stems out of right not being present and grounded in the moment at the time. So I appreciate those words, those closing words very, very much. Thank and you. You summarize it better than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Akira. Oh, it's absolutely. been great talking. Same. for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the Moms We Interview and find out how to work with Akua as a parenting coach. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.